Sharon Holland. I'm an elder not currently serving on session here at the church. And uh, Drew asked me to preach this morning uh, while our, our clergy, our pastors, are at our national gathering. Our denomination has a national gathering once a year in which they uh, have fellowship with each other and they pray for us and they make decisions for the the church for the year, and we uh, pray that this is a fruitful and restful and delightful time for all of our pastors who are there. Uh, Drew asked me to preach today on truth. Uh, Drew is uh, doing a sermon series on the goodness of God and the good quality of God he asked me to preach on was truth which immediately made me remember something. Stay with me here a moment. I am afraid of dentists. I have a misshaped joint in my jaw that makes it painful and difficult to open my mouth very wide and makes dental exams scary and painful. Uh, To make matters worse, I have bad teeth. I take great care of them. You don't have to give me a lecture. I really do. But I'm still losing them. In fact... I just had my first dental implant finished, so if my words get a little slurred, please forgive me. It's just trying to learn how to speak clearly around my new titanium tooth. But during one particular dental procedure that scared me, I asked my friends and family to pray for me, and I prayed for me. And during the procedure, I closed my eyes and I sang hymns in my head. And something happened. I was in the chair, eyes closed, in a helpless and rather miserable position, trying to think about God instead of being afraid. And I had this realization. If this, just this awful moment, were all that my life was, it would still be a blessing. If the only thing that existence was was this moment trapped in a dental chair. I would still thank God for it because even here in this chair, I can know God and God is good. Knowing God is the point of everything and it is the comfort in everything. Even in distress, even in suffering, even in a world filled with corruption, even in the midst of lies. Our forefathers in the Reformed faith put it this way in the language of their day. What is the chief end of man? Did any of you memorize that as children? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now maybe you haven't had a dental chair existential crisis. Some of you may be here for the first time. Maybe you come every week. Maybe the notion of God is weird or unfamiliar to you. You might be here because uh, you were invited and you came as a favor to someone. You might be here because you were invited and you just wanted them to stop asking. So if you're not used to this talk of God and you don't understand what we mean by it, let let me give you a little exercise to help you understand a little bit of what Christians mean when they're talking about God. 
I want you to think about for a moment what you know, rock-bottom certainty, know to be right and wrong. Across all cultures, regardless of circumstance or point in history, what you know absolutely right here forever, no matter what, is right and wrong. Now, I want you to see that right and wrong and know it has eternity. The reason you feel so absolutely certain this is right and wrong is because it is foundational to the existence of the universe. That right and wrong always has been and always will be, unalterably. Now I want you to add something else to that foundational eternal right and wrong. It has personhood. It can notice and know you. If you come with me that far, you're beginning to understand what Christians mean when they talk about God. Jesus came so that we can know who God is. Jesus shows us who God is in his teaching, like we're going to read today. He shows who God is in Jesus' own person, and he shows us who God is by what Jesus has done, by his death and resurrection. What Jesus did reconciles us to that eternal right and wrong. All of the ways that you don't measure up to it, that it convicts you and you say, oh, but I was on the side of wrong that time. All of those times, Jesus can cleanse you from that. That's what he came for. Now today, we're going to read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is not uh, the text that's in your uh, bulletin. I'm sorry for that. And that's, that's my lateness in getting the text to uh, Pastor Drew, which is in Luke chapter 18. Oh, I forgot my glasses. Okay. This is going to be an adventure. All right. Starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you've been going to church for a while, you may think you know who the Pharisees are. They show up in the Gospels a lot, usually when Jesus is arguing with them. The word Pharisee has even come to mean in English a synonym for hypocrisy and self-righteousness. 
As soon as Christians hear the word Pharisee in a story, they expect the Pharisee to be the bad guy. We are primed. We are ready. Okay, let's hear how awful that Pharisee was. Of course, any sermon of mine is going to have a history lesson, so now I'm going to correct your notion of the Pharisees. When Jesus told this parable, that's not how his listeners would have understood Pharisees. The Pharisees were not just the respectable people, they were the righteous people. The Pharisees are the people who, when Israel was dragged into exile, the Pharisees asked themselves, how do we obey God when we don't have a temple? How do we obey God in captivity? Well, the way we will obey God is we will love his scriptures. We will love his law. We will spend every day talking about how we're going to obey it. The Pharisees are the founders of the synagogue. It was the spiritual support of people in exile wanting to obey their God. Where did Jesus announce the beginning of his ministry? In a synagogue. In fact, if you look at Jesus in the context of his day and the different Jewish groups of his day, the group he's most like are the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees are the first people in in Israel to teach that the individual soul after death will be either rewarded or punished for what it does in this life. These are teachings Jesus also teaches. And the Pharisees are the inheritors of the martyrs. So when Israel gets conquered by, they're always getting conquered by somebody, right? But when they get conquered by the Greeks, after Alexander the Great dies, his generals fight over who's going to control Judea. And one of the... uh, one of those Greeks who tries to control Judea is a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He named himself Epiphanes because it means an appearance of the God. Very, very full of himself. And he hated the Jews because he wanted to be treated like he was divine and the Jews wouldn't do it. And he persecuted them with the single-mindedness of a madman. This is before Jesus is even born. He committed horrors that I won't burden you with this morning. But the Pharisees are the people who stayed faithful in that kind of persecution. When Jesus starts a story saying a Pharisee and a tax collector went to pray, every one of his listeners was primed to hear how good the Pharisee was. And Jesus flips the script. At the same time, the tax collector is the worst. Every one of his listeners would have expected the tax collector to be the worst. Again, foreign powers keep invading and conquering Israel. In Jesus' day, it's the empire of Rome, and they are brutal. And the empire of Rome, would every empire runs on taxes, So the empire would send out tax collectors. They were usually local people. And they would underpay their tax collectors. This is not the IRS guy you know. 
A Roman tax collector was not paid sufficiently by his government because he was expected to grift the people. He would add money onto what you owed and then keep that for himself. That was the expectation. So a a tax collector is a collaborator. He's helping that foreign power. A tax collector is a thief. He's making your life harder and taking your money, and there's nothing you can do about it. Nobody was more contemptible in the eyes of Jesus' listeners than a tax collector. So the most righteous man and the most contemptible man go to a temple to pray. And the righteous man lists his righteousness. And the contemptible man says, Have mercy on me, God, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home justified. That means made righteous, turned into goodness. How can this be? How can the good guy become the bad guy and the bad guy become the good guy? Well, it's the truth of God. Our Pharisee, the things he's listing about himself, I think we're supposed to understand those are true things. He's not making up lies. That really is his, his spiritual resume. He doesn't do these bad things, and he does these good things that cost him fasting and tithing. They cost him something. But the Pharisee is going to meet a God he expects to be stingy. A God who needs to be cajoled into meeting him. A God who doesn't want to be known, and you have to persuade him by the list of all your accomplishments. That's not who God is. The honest facts about the Pharisee become lies, not because they stop being honest facts, but because the greater truth of who God is swamps our honest facts. The honest fact of who the tax collector is is a sinner. But the truth of God is that God is merciful. And our tax collector went to the temple to pray, to meet a merciful God. The truth of the goodness of the God the tax collector expected to meet is greater than the honest facts of his life. Jesus flips the script. Jesus came to tell us who God is, and it turns out we've got it wrong. God is not the person who measures us and decides if we're more good than bad. Uh, I enjoyed the sitcom The Good Place. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's kind of an expression of what our, our general secular culture thinks of the afterlife. And the dilemma of the characters is, have I done more good than bad? Well, 
That's not how God sees you. Have you done more good than bad? The goodness of God is only something we receive through Jesus Christ. It cannot be something we achieve by our hard work. The goodness of God swamps the honest facts about ourselves. We confess our sins in acknowledgement of the great mercy and goodness of God. Now, the God, I I would like to consider for a minute our Pharisee here. We're respectable people mostly. That's probably why we're here. That's why a lot of people go to church. I was raised uh, to think that respectable people go to church. Good people go to church. Respectability, however, gets you nothing with God. Receiving the goodness of God. We receive, we don't achieve. And our friend the Pharisee, I mean, what did he expect? Did he think that the God who created the stars was going to be impressed with his tithe? With his fast? Because the tax collector did not come to a stingy God who needed persuading, he had no resume to present. He said, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector knew who he was, but he also knew who God was. And that is what made him righteous, the goodness of God. Now, there's an error that Christians sometimes fall into when it comes to humbling ourselves. Jesus says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And there's, it, there's a particular Presbyterian take on this error. Some of you might be familiar with it. And that is, it goes like this. <clears throat> if everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, then the secret to knowing God is to think as badly about myself as possible. I will hate myself more than anyone else can hate me. I will criticize myself more than anyone else can criticize me. If other sinners are a wretch, I will be a worm. You might know this. That's not what Jesus is saying. Does that sound like humility? All that is is an upside-down Pharisee. You've turned self-criticism or even the confession of sin into your new resume. That you're submitting to God. That's not real humility. Real humility is the song we just sang. Are we worthy? He is worthy. Every now and then when I'm out and about, I uh, drive by the uh, school out on the east side of town. The Riverview East Academy, I think it's called. I just, I love this, the look of this school building. And if you're not familiar with it, they built a school on the floodplain of the Ohio River. And that sounds like a crazy idea. Well, they built the school on stilts. It's on these big columns. So when the Ohio River floods, the water washes under the school and then back out. And they put the playground underneath the school so it's shaded and less damage is caused if things flood. I don't know anything about architecture, so I don't know if this is a good or bad idea, but I love the, the look of the building. 
because it makes me think the Ohio River, this great and mighty river, was there long before the school, and it will still be there long after the school uh, has crumbled into dust. This is the, the honest fact of a school built in the expectation of the truth of a mighty river. Your sins, your flaws, all of the traits about you, things you're proud of, things you're ashamed of, all of them, those are just honest facts. They stand in the middle of a great truth of the mighty river of the goodness of God. Your facts can't hold back the river. We come to God in the expectation of that mighty river of grace and mercy. And that is where God meets us and lets himself be known. That is where your sins are washed away and you go home justified, made righteous. When I was young... I went to a uh, exchange program in the Soviet Union. It was the the end, the last days of the Soviet Union, and uh, we were a Christian school, and we were meeting uh, college students from the Soviet Union who'd been raised under Soviet atheism, and they had a a friendly intellectual curiosity about what Christianity was. So we talked about it frequently. And one of my friends, the closest friend I made there, she distilled all our conversations down to one problem. Her grandfather had been imprisoned under Stalin in the gulags, the terrible uh, Russian political prisons. He had been imprisoned because a man who was jealous of him had told a lie to the government. And so her grandfather was arrested, and imprisoned for decades. And my friend said to me, do you mean to tell me that if the man who turned my grandfather in and got him imprisoned felt sorry and asked God for forgiveness, he'd be forgiven and he'd go to heaven too? That's not right. I can't believe in a God like that. But that is actually what Jesus is saying. God flips the script. He doesn't do what we expect if we're, if our expectations are built on the measurement of our own honest facts. If you turn knowing God into a competition, it will only make you lose. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if that never makes you tremble, then consider for a moment whom you hate. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if that never feels like cool water on a parched soul, then you have not considered who you are. 
The goodness of God is the great truth that swamps all our honest facts. We have only to receive it. And when we do, he not only makes us righteous, he promises someday to come and make the world righteous. And on the long, slow path from here to there, we don't know when our Lord is returning. But we do know that the goodness of God is still at work in the world, and it's changing things. It changes us. It changes the world. It changes the things that grieve us. Have you met any emperors lately? When's the last time someone asked you to slice up your arm for a ritual sacrifice to the god Baal? Did you pass any temple prostitutes on your way into church today? Those were endemic problems. They're gone. The lies and corruptions we see today that grieve us, that break our hearts, even those will not stand against the goodness of God. They cannot. So we await our Savior to come and at last make everything right. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us now pray the pastoral prayer together. Almighty God, we thank you for your goodness for the truth of who you are, and we ask that you continue to set it loose in the world, that you cleanse our souls, that you cleanse our country, that you cleanse all of the structures of our society that harm us. We ask that you put gentleness and tenderness and goodness in every human heart, that you make us love one another as we should. We ask that you heal the sick, that you give hope to the despairing. We ask that you give the presence of your Holy Spirit to all those who are persecuted. We ask that you turn the hearts of their persecutors and make them also seek your grace and mercy. And most of all, Lord, we ask that you return quickly and set our world right. We ask these things in the heavenly name of Jesus Christ. Amen.